behold the sword of power, Excalibur. Welcome to episode 23 of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 23, we're still on the cross time caper with Excalibur number 22, Shadows Triumphant, originally published in May 1990. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Chris Wozniak on pencils, Al Milgram on inks, Brad Venkata on colors, Tim Harkins on letters, and Cherry Kavanaugh on editing. But on this Easter day, when Christ rose from the dead, may one night here through victory in arms find the grace to draw the sword and be king. This issue continues the storyline from last issue, which we covered last week, which wasn't one of our favorites, and this isn't either. But please stay tuned anyway, because we've got a fab guest who knows plenty about representation and revisionism, and we're going to talk lots about both of those things today. But first, the regulars. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about sex and gender and issues of representation in lots of books and journals and websites. And sometimes, when I'm lucky, university classrooms, I'm the editor of a book called Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero. I'm the co-host of another podcast with Andrew from this podcast called Three Panel Contrast. I also co-write monthly reviews of Daredevil and the current Nightcrawler-centric X-Men book Way of X for the website Comics XF. And I remain, as always, Kurt Bogner's somehow still unofficial PR manager. Mav, you're up next. I am the terror that flaps in the night. I am the squished plug on the your flying saucer windshield. Uh <laughs> I'm going to continue doing um, Darkwing Duck references um, whenever we talk about Crusader X because I don't like this. I don't like this at all. So, (laughs) and you can't make me. (laughs) Um, My name's Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. And I am, uh, among other things, uh, I mean, I guess I'm a comic book lover, but this makes it hard. I really, really dislike this book. Um, I'm a PhD candidate in literary and cultural studies. I study yeah, you guys have heard the intro before. <laughs> I'm the host of another podcast called Vox Popcast. Just this is this is hard, Anna. This book's hard. I don't, <laughs> don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. The next victim to be grabbed into this discussion is Andrew. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Dr. Andrew Deman. I'm on faculty at St. Jerome's University, um, which is an affiliate of the University of Waterloo. Um, I also run the Claremont Run, which is a big project celebrating all the good things that Chris Claremont has done. And one of the questions that I get a lot is if you wanted to sort of like show someone what Claremont can do, what what book would you show them? And I've decided that this is like literally the exact opposite of that because all the bad things Claremont does are on full display here. I, I want to hide this one. I want to pretend it doesn't exist. It'll make my job and my life much easier. Okay, well, on that note, I should introduce our very lucky guest for this issue. <laughs> we are joined this week by a woman who's not quite a doctor at the time of this recording, but I have no doubt will be by the time this episode comes out. The pod is thrilled to welcome Sophia Hussain. Welcome, Sophia. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll continue thanking you um, throughout the discussion. <laughs> I just want to apologize to her that we had her here this week. <laughs> I know, I know. But let's tell our let's tell our listeners a little bit about Sophia and what makes her so well qualified to help us make sense of this issue. So Sophia is a PhD candidate in the joint program in communication and culture between Ryerson University and York University. Her dissertation is a feminist study on Muslim superheroes and the imperialist project, and her research has appeared in the Popular Culture Studies Journal, the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics, and Feminist Encounters, a Journal of Critical Studies in Culture and Politics. She was selected by Vice Media's Motherboard for one of their Humans of the Year in 2017 
team and her comics writing and research on Muslim superheroes. Her comics writing has appeared in several indie anthologies as well as The Nib. She has also written for The Conversation and Women Write About Comics. Now, Sophia, I know from talking to you that this is your first time reading Excalibur. And once again, we are so, so sorry that this had to be your introduction to it. Um, It's usually much better, we swear. But before we get to those first impressions, I was wondering about your wider familiarity with the X-Men franchise. Like, is the X-Men franchise part of your work on representation at all? So I admit I'm not this um, great specialist on the X-Men. I think you guys all are. Um, I think Andrew definitely would be. But I do. it does actually very much factor into my work. Um, so my dissertation is, is an audience study of young adult Muslims' perspectives of Muslim superheroes. And I actually factored in three Muslim superheroines. Like the study is really around three Muslim superheroines. And they are Miss Marvel, of course, but two X-Men are in there. And it's Soraya Kadir, who is codenamed mm-hmm. Dust, and um, Monet Sinclair, who's codenamed M. And both of them are X-Men and both of them are Muslim superhero superheroines, or I would even call them, I call them Muslima su- superheroes as well, because Muslima means is basically like a, a female Muslim. Um, so X-Men does actually factor in a lot. And it's actually quite interesting too, because it's a team versus Miss Marvel. Well, she's in the Avengers as well too. But you know, when I was actually critiquing them and I was um, doing my analyses on them, I had to talk them in connection to other superheroes as well and being part of a team. Um, and there wasn't really a lot to actually say as well because they're more tokenized. They don't even have a mini series to them. They, you know, and then you have to take into, into consideration the storyline of other um, superheroes that took up time in in the volumes that they were in. But um, I do actually, I do actually factor in um, X-Men a lot in my work. Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds like it. So, I mean, is most of your work kind of focused on the 21st century context? I mean, Monet dates sort of to the early 90s, but Dust and Kamala Khan obviously would be 21st century creations. Right, yeah. Yeah, definitely 21st century. It's actually specifically after 9-11. I, I situate the Muslim superhero, that archetype just overall within um, the context of the war on terror. And I actually even situate the Muslim superhero within the imperialist project just overall. So my first uh, chapter in my dissertation didn't really only do that. Like, I, believe it or not, um, when I was talking about Orientalism to start with, I actually started talking about Tali al Ghul and a very... Um, um, obscure volume that she was in called Elseworlds Finest. But most most of my work is really um, 21st century and war on terror. Yeah, and I mean, that's fair. That can be a much more productive era to kind of focus on if you want to do a little bit more than just kind of list all of the problems, although I'm sure you end up doing a lot of that in your work as well. And we're going to end up doing a lot of that with this particular issue, I have no doubt. Oh, yeah. So um, so you don't have like, a, you wouldn't have like a ton of familiarity then sort of from the era that this comic book is coming out. Like, like you don't have a ton of familiarity probably with the with the 80s X-Men. Sort of probably a passing familiarity though, right? Uh, I would say so. I, in the context of Muslim um, representation in comics, I know some of it. I mean, Jack mm-hmm. Shaheen, his his work is penultimate on representation and on Arabs and Muslims. And remember mm-hmm. the Shadow King or Farouk are, they're Arabs. So I'm I'm faintly aware of, of the representation pre 21st century, um, mainly in the 90s. Um, and then also to at the same time, like I had to cite um, scholars that talked about the difference between Muslim and Arab representation in the 21st century and mm-hmm. right before that as well too. So I'm a slightly familiar from a representational aspect, not so much from a comics aspect, but a little bit actually because... Jack Shaheen does actually talk about Arab representation in comics, and I saw that what he was saying in this in this issue. Oh, you know a lot about this <laughs> stuff. I know that you do. You don't have to undersell yourself. Can I ask oh, you, you a very important question? Is that would you describe yourself like as a fan of X Men comics? Because I feel like this is something that we get kind of put in a difficult position about sometimes when we're doing issues of representation research, because so much of what we end up talking about is sort of the problematicness of these texts, though. But would you describe yourself as a fan of these things? Like what made you want to study superhero comics? Like, was there something that drew you to them that excited? 
excited you about them that made you want to study them? Or was it more because you wanted to look at those problematic elements or was it a little bit of both? Well, I would say that I'm more a fan of the X-Men just in general, um, at least where the movies were concerned, because the X-Men is what got me into superheroes. Like I can't tell you the first X. Yeah, the X-Men, well, at least the films, the X-Men film that came out in like the year 2000, the first one, I watched it like a hundred times. I just, I just loved it so much. And um, it's still one of my favorite X-Men movies. But, you know, with that said, it's hard to kind of say because for a title that's been around for so long, you know, some of it has just been really, really bad, particularly the representation of dust. Um, I I wasn't very nice about dust in um, in, in some of my my work, you know, because it's, it's just so Orientalist. But I do like Monet's representation. I wish we would have more, at least G. Willow Wilson doing something like a mini series on her. I would love to see that. I feel like even if we did like a reinvention of Dust, she could be saved. I've had I've had some people be like, no, like there's no way you can ever make Dust look better. So I do have my my problems <laughs> with the X-Men, but you know, I, I personally think there's hope for reinventing Dust. And and I, I would say I I have a soft spot in my heart for X-Men, just at least from a filmic representation, because that is what got me loving superheroes. So, and my interest really in why I decided to look specifically at Muslim superheroes was really because of the fact that like, I was more thinking like, well, we have all these negative representations of Muslims. What, what representations challenge these negative representations? So that was how I got into Muslim superheroes, but X-Men made me fall in love with superheroes. I mean, I love that because I think, again, like when we're people that do a lot of research on issues of representation, which all of us on this podcast actually do, but from different sort of areas and angles, people sometimes don't understand that part of the reason we do this work is because we actually really love these things and we just want them to be better. And that's part of where kind of our passion for critiquing these things oftentimes comes from. So I always like to kind of like talk about that and make sure that people know that we're not out here just hating on these things because we're angry, vengeful people. Like we're here because we love these things and we want them to be better. And nice. like that's a huge part both. of what we're doing. N- it can nice be disclaimer, both. Because this episode's gonna make <laughs> I know. Hard. I just given like... <laughs> how this was gonna go, I know. But we just, just keep in mind, listeners, we, we are yelling about this issue because we love and and just keep that in mind. Yeah. We, we're, <laughs> we're I I honestly think popular culture is far more important than people give it credit for. Yeah, oh absolutely. yes, none of us would disagree with you there for sure. I mean, we're doing an issue by issue read through of a thirty-year-old comic, so we clearly think it has some kind of importance. A thirty-year, a thirty-year-old 30 B-level comic at that. <laughs> like then, it was like, never the. It was never the most popular. Even then, it's brilliant and also well, problematic in our hearts as but, today. <laughs> um, let's do our issue summary, and we'll come back to some more questions about Sophia's research and representation, and kind of relate that to some of the issues going on in this comic with gender and with the representation of Shadow King. We're going to talk about all of those things. But first, issue summary. So as I say every week, a very hearty thank you to all of the lovely listeners reading along with the pod. But for everyone else who may need a refresher, we'll start with that plot summary. And frankly, this issue is so confusing. I'm going to guess even those listeners who did read the issue for the pod will probably appreciate it too. Excalibur number 22 opens deep within the Tower of London, where Nightcrawler is being interrogated for crimes of espionage committed by his evil doppelganger, who is apparently a Prussian agent. As you'll recall, in this reality, official designation Earth 2122, the United Kingdom still rules America and World War I never happened, so most of Europe is dominated by kingdoms and empires, including Prussia and Austro-Hungary. If you missed all that backstory in the issue, don't be too hard on yourself. I've read this issue many times and had to look that up. Kurt keeps proclaiming his innocence, and Alison Stewart, who's the Weird Happenings Organization scientist in this reality, believes him, but nobody else does. Because the psychics seem to be missing, Alistair Stewart, who's the brigadier in this reality, basically approves Di Thomas's plan to keep punching Kurt until he tells them something useful. Meanwhile, Crusader X departs for the X-Mansion to search for those missing psychics. There, he finds a female presenting Archangel, who's apparently dating Cable, who's pretty much the same. We also find lots of injured mutants, with Lady Moira McTaggart and Lord Charles Xavier taking the brunt. Xavier is catatonic and not expected to survive. Jean Grey remains missing, so Crusader X leaves to track her down. 
From there, we jump to Merlin Muse, where a woman who seems to be Kitty Pride is on her way to work when she's attacked by a gang, apparently because she's Crusader X's girlfriend, and the gang doesn't approve of interracial relationships. We will talk about that. The woman who looks like Kitty is saved by Lockheed, Megan, and Captain Britain, at which point she informs them she's not Kitty, she's Courtney Ross. Over at the Hellfire Club, Rachel fools Iron Man and Shadow King into believing she's Jean Grey under the control of Shadow King. Thus, they assume everything is going according to plan, the plan being assassinating all the monarchs of the world's greatest powers who have gathered in London for a conference. As a mutant liaison, Jean Grey had privileged access to the summit, which will allow Iron Man to enter and proceed with the assassination as part of a desperate bid for American independence. We check in briefly with the actual Kitty Pride back in the 616 who's at the London Zoo taunting the werewolves like the sadist she is. The werewolves are holding a copy of a newspaper with a headline that says an animal rights group has secured their release. Kitty, with a huge smile on her face, basically threatens to kill them once they're released again. <laughs> Very sadistically. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Back on Earth 2122, Alison brings Kurt some coffee in his cell and he flirts with her, having learned nothing from his Nazi doppelganger's inappropriate behavior towards 616 Alison 11 issues before. Kurt kind of seduces her, then teleports them both outside, at which point Captain Britain shows up and starts wrecking things in an overzealous attempt to save the already saved Kurt. Crusader X arrives and fights Captain Britain, and it seems like it'll never end, but it does when Lockheed roars at them and I guess snaps them out of their rage trance. Elsewhere, at the Summit of World Leaders, Rachel knocks out the guards and Iron Man busts into the conference room. There, he finds Rachel waiting. She is, in fact, not under the control of Shadow King and has called the authorities to apprehend Iron Man. That doesn't exactly go smoothly, but Captain Britain and Crusader X show up to help and end things relatively fast, thank goodness. At the end of the issue, Excalibur et al. investigate the Hellfire Club, but find Shadow King and all the other members missing. Rachel hugs Kurt, and it should be heartwarming, but honestly, after all that mishmash, I'm not even feeling it. So, already we're pretty grumpy about this issue, but let's start with some first impressions. I'm starting with you, Sophia. Being that you're a newcomer to Excalibur, and again, we'll keep apologizing for this being your introduction to the series, (laughs) but did this comic make any sense to you? There's a lot of weird continuity stuff going on in this comic. There's the alternate universe factor, there's doppelgangers, like, reading this, and I know you did read issue 21 as well, but did this make any sense to you at all? It made little sense because of the alternate universes (laughs) and um, also to all these doppelgangers and then new names because I'm now reading Excalibur. So the like Alessandre, for instance, and again, I apologize if I, you know, um, should know her from other X-Men comics or anything of that nature. No, 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 no,
one little change and let's all go on this journey where we can follow from there. And, you know, this is a fanfic exploration of what would happen if I made this change to reality. And that can work for better or for worse. It's how it's how what ifs work in Marvel Universe. It's how Elseworlds work. It's how we envision alternate realities. As far as I can tell, Chris Claremont wrote a what if I made this change to a story that only exists in his head because this is not an alternate version of the dark phoenix saga or an alternate version of days of future past or an alternate version of anything that he wrote in that 16 year period i mean like the continuity is broken because he's referring to stuff like oh well the shadow king you know if if world war ii hadn't happened then the shadow king wouldn't have been ousted from the hellfire club the shadow king is not part of the hellfire club and their continuity right now what does this even mean yeah so i mean the crux of the confusingness is this Rachel flashback that we have at the middle of this issue and I right. hate it like crazy because it's the emotional crux of the issue and yet yeah. it's all happening in this flashback that then we're told in the notes will be appearing in Excalibur special edition three and four on sale this spring and summer so there is no <laughs> Excalibur special edition number three and four <laughs> those comics never happened so this flashback only exists here some of the material was later adapted into X-Men True Friends in 1999 so many years later Later. but that even then it's, it's, it's not the story it's not the story that we get here either that's mostly like a kitty pride time travel book and the rachel thing doesn't happen as it's depicted here and it's also just not the main part of the story so that's a huge problem i mean we can give it the benefit of the doubt that he intended for this story to be told elsewhere but that still makes no sense because then that story would have happened after the story that is supposed to give us the emotional payoff so it's just this is just a really poor choice and we understand the complications of serialized comics and publishing timelines and all of those things we really really do but this is just really bad storytelling. Excalibur, he always had a lot more fr when Claremont was in charge of Excalibur because he leaves not, you know, he leaves eventually not long after this. In fact, mm -hmm. um, he'll oh, be yeah. gone. Yeah, but um, I don't think he would have ever gotten away with this in the X-Men major title it's there's no plan here i mean or if he's if he's got yeah. a plan it's too loosey-goosey the continuity doesn't make sense the editorial control was needed here I'm that's the issue right fan. he's without yeah. simonson or nasenti Terry right. Cavanaugh I, is the editor of this book, and I, and I think a lot of this has to fall on him. Right, and I, I'm a huge Claremont fan, but Cl Chris Claremont, at his best, has Louise Simonson telling him no, or has Anderson, or has yeah. Anderson, Anderson telling him no, and nobody tells him no here. And I don't know what any of this stuff is. There are seeds of a story that if this weren't just a two-issue arc, if there is an interesting alternate reality where Kitty Pride and Courtney Ross are the same person, and there's all this alternate stuff, and this is dealt with that could maybe be an interesting 12 inch issue comic it's not like she says we're in an interracial relationship and you go you are because yeah, where'd I, that come from yeah, i know and it's like oh you're i'm not kitty pride i'm courtney ross and i'm like you are because it doesn't come up again i have a question just overall before we get into interracial stuff and you know this weird continuity break but i'm curious to know how is claremont's representation of arabs and muslims overall because <laughs> yeah that's a good question better than other people in 1989 yeah. not great yeah i mean <laughs> <laughs> Not great, but it's better than other people in 1989. I, that's the most fair I can possibly be to him. With his racial rep representation in general, it was always very important for him for the X-Men world to be diverse. But a lot of it's written like a white guy who's never met anybody of the races that he's in that he's introducing. But it's written like a white guy who's never met anybody of this race who's trying really hard. Is that fair, Andrew? Yeah, I think the, <laughs> the valid comparison here would be um, it's been argued that the Marvel bullpen in the 1970s went to the movies a lot and they really wanted to write progressive black characters. But the movies they were seeing were black exploitation films. Yeah. So even with the best of intentions it's going to come out just based on stereotype and ignorance. Okay, okay. I, I just just because, like, I feel sometimes when you're trying to create this ominous Muslim character, just overall, like, I'll give you an example, like Fables. I stopped reading Fables um, after there was some indication of, I, I think it's Bill Willingham. He tried to make it look as though, you know, 
Arabs were the greatest evil ever and, you know, they can't have any power. And, you know, there was this one issue that really drove that home and I just stopped reading it after. And so sometimes I feel that there can be writers that do have biases of other people or or sometimes are less biased of other people, but just are very biased of Arabs and Muslims. And this idea that, you know, he had the control of, um, of like starting up World War Three and, you know, trying to to be uh, somebody that was trying to stop American independence, so therefore becoming um, an enemy to the entire Western world and to the U.S. as well, too, actually really plays into highly Orientalist um, stereotypes. And so I, I just was wondering if it was just that he had ever singled out like Arabs and Muslims, um, even though he's been interested in diversity, I've ever singled it out as in like, okay, but these groups, they, these two groups, don't get a pass. Um, because I have seen that before. I mean, you know, even Mark Wade, um, who's supposed to be a more liberal uh, comic creator, right, written about it in the conversation where I was, you know, pretty disappointed in his representation of Kamala in the earlier Champions issues. And I was, I was surprised by this because, you know, this is something that I just wouldn't have expected from someone who seemed more social justice oriented and, you know, was fighting comics gate so significantly. So, and it, it seemed like there were other Muslim readers as well, too, that were deeply disappointed. So I, I was, that's why I just asked, you know, because, you know, if, if you're trying to create this, all, all, if he's practically in an alternate universe itself, it's sometimes the really the Islamophobia and the Orientalism that sometimes drives um, the bias that drives them sometimes to create these things. I'd say at his best, the comparison to Mark Wade in the early Champions issues is very apt. Right. At, at, at Claremont's best, he's doing the best he can, and the mistakes are of ignorance more so than intentional hatred. Right, right. Well, and I mean, I think what Sophia is getting at, though, too, mm -hmm. that like representations of Muslim characters can be a thing that sometimes falls through the cracks in terms of a thing that creators mm -hmm. are aware that they should care about in terms of representation. And certainly mm -hmm. in 1989, 90, I can see that falling through the cracks as something. I mean, they'd be much more aware of, you know, civil rights and that context and like wanting to create progressive black characters and Native American characters to a certain extent than they would be aware of some of these stereotypes, which were so ingrained in the culture. And that's not giving any a pass that's no. like yeah but mm -hmm. i mean i w think maybe we should talk a little bit about the history of the shadow king character because mm -hmm. that does stand out as the height of mm -hmm. bad orientalist tropes like throughout <laughs> kind of like the claremont run because i mean there's two things that spring to mind it's both shadow king who's set up as kind of like a big bad in the franchise during claremont's time on the book and there's also some questionable stuff in the introduction of legion in terms of some stuff that happens in the mindscape of of yeah. professor xavier's son legion having to do with uh orientalist stereotypes there i don't want to delve into that one too much because it's complicated but if you're interested in rereading those issues our listeners certainly can but let's talk about shadow king andrew could you walk us through a little bit about the history of this character which is very very complicated but just sort of some of the basics of like where does this character first show up what are some of the themes that are sort of going on with this character and then we'll kind of get to the portrayal of this character in this particular comic uh yeah i can probably do that quickly he's, he's basically a one-off villain um during the burn claremont era um xavier walks into um i think he's in egypt at the time cairo specifically walks into a bar there's another telepath in there and they have a telepathic duel and at the end the other telepath who is the shadow king um farouk at this time falls dead um now many years later they bring him back in the new mutants as a sort of um what's the word i'm looking for here disembodied telepathic vampire uh and he, he can inhabit other people's bodies now which is actually one of the real problems with this portrayal that farouk body should be dead even in this world because it knows xavier so it, it just it the whole thing doesn't make a ton of sense and um right at the time that this excalibur issue was coming out claremont was building up the return of the shadow king in uxm as this, this really really big bad uh, and at this point in his career he has this bad kind of tendency of trying to retcon the importance of emerging villains like this is the same era when he's inserting mr sinister into classic x-men as if mr sinister has always been there um so i'm assuming cable. doing that here yeah cable too for sure um so he's doing a little bit of that there he's just trying to make shadow king the biggest thing ever by having him appear in all these books and 
yeah, that's that's basically the history of the character. Yeah, and I mean, the point, just a point of emphasis is the fact that they changed the character to be this possessive vampire character, like, at a point, and that wasn't originally clear. So this has happened across so many years. The current interpretation <laughs> of that history is that there is this mutant who's Amel Farouk who gets inhabited by Shadow King that was sort of introduced in New Mutants 14 just from December of this year so this is a continuity that is still being updated. So you have this element to this character where he isn't Amel Farouk, he is being possessed by Shadow King and that was clear at this point in the comics because as Andrew said the Farouk body would have been dead in, at this point in the continuity. He possesses karma for a while and possess other characters um, in the 90s but we have him returning to this Oriel stereotype. I mean, I was curious about the nature yeah. of Shadow King's powers and how they play into some of those stereotypes. We know he's evil because of these strong sort of Orientalist um, yeah. aspects of the character. I mean, I will say just quickly, and I want to come back to Sophia to talk about some of these stereotypes and caricature elements of the character. But um, yeah, that splitting, so that making it very clear that Farouk is like a separate person, that is a very recent thing um, that happens in the current comics that I think is trying to reckon with the stereotype of this character. And yet we see him on panel being the same caricature <laughs> so I don't know how much that actually helps but um let's come back to you Sophia in terms of some of the stereotypes and I do want to talk about the relationship between stereotype and caricature here too with this character what are some of the stereotypes about Muslim or Arab representation and the way those two things are intertwined in a character like this like I mean I'm thinking about his possessive nature like his insidious nature his fluidity his ability to possess other people and like infiltrate other people and how that's bound up in a lot of sort of exotic tropes from different cultures but does that particularly resonate with some tropes that you've run across in your work um well so first of all i actually am really happy for the history lesson on the shadow king because this is a perfect time to give a <laughs> bit of a history lesson lesson on muslim representation in comics and pop culture at wide um so the 90s version is like okay um you know here's farouk and he's this horrible and bad you know person he's he's just motivated by pure evil and that's just it you know he's he's evil and and probably even backwards and that kind of thing. I think his appearance overall, just side note, his appearance actually isn't as bad as other appearances I've seen. Dust has a worst appearance from that aspect. But pre-21st century and post-21st century, for Muslim representation underwent a bit of um, a makeover. And the best way to describe it is through Evelyn Al-Sultani's concept called simplified complex representation. So in the 90s, it was just, they were just big and bad and they were horrible. And these were like, um, they were just pure evil and they were always bad backwards and they were always savage and um, they were always the enemy to the hero. They were not ever a hero. And then post 9-11, they came up with different strategies how to present Muslims as more complex, right? So what they did really in the end is they still regurgitated stereotypes a lot of the times, but they tried to give them a slight bit of more depth. And so it became a craftier way to sort of um, manipulate the narrative to make it look as though we're we're feigning some depth, we're feigning some nuance, but at the end of the day, they're always still um, representing them as bad, as terrorist, as um, uh, anti-American, anti-democratic, that kind of thing. And so I feel like with Farouk in the 21st century, you know, them trying to make sense of how is it that we come to terms with this evil character? It's to try to make it look as though, oh, he's good, but it's just that he's being possessed, right? And but they still regurgitate very negative stereotypes of a of Arabs and Muslims. So that's that's really like Dust is a is an example of simplified complex representation to some extent, right? She's really like an implied radical. She's the stereotype of like the type of person that is much uh, maligned in media, but this time and, and somebody like her, even in the 90s, would have been evil. There was a representation of a, a villainous, the veil, very tokenized, um, and also to a mutant back in the 90s that was just evil. But Dust in this time, she regurgitates so many stereotypes in terms of appearance and in terms of like, you know, her storylines as well, too. But she's the good mutant. She's on the side of like the X-Men, right? So it's feigning complexity, really, at the end of the day, like it's represented presentation now it's feigning a bit of complexity but it's still very negative overall but in the 90s they never felt the need to even try to make the you know characters like this complex 
they, it was just very much a simplified villain. Sorry for running off on that tangent. Yeah, and I mean, no, no, that's fine. That's really interesting. Other things that sort of bother me about this portrayal are just the way it's this very grand Orientalism where it's just, it's all of these different sort of Eastern tropes and it doesn't matter which East we're talking about because this character is very similar to a character like Fu Manchu as well, right? I mean, even in terms of sort of the methods of the character, like all supervillains are like this, but all supervillains are in a sense modeled after Fu Manchu and you can see some of those sort of early similarities in the portrayal of someone like the Joker in Batman comics. And of course, the first issue of Detective Comics features Fu Manchu on the cover. So there's a long history of that stereotype in particular appearing in superhero comics. But in terms of the methods of this character too, right, he operates in the shadows, right? He's like sort of pulling the strings of all of these different people in the world order with this harem of women at his feet. He's dehumanized in terms of his physical features. He doesn't have eyes. He has this enormous smile, right? There's just so much about this character that it's like almost impossible to talk about him except for as a list of things that are deeply problematic about him. I'm really not a fan of this character. Like, I, I don't want to say it's a positive, but the one thing I found very interesting is that they gave his superpowers a, psych a psychic dimension, more like almost like magic. And usually they portray Muslim men as being like very overtly violent, you know, with guns and trying to bomb somewhere or something like that, right? So... Sorry, go yeah, on. I mean, it is interesting that we have Iron Man, like the American character who's being the terrorist sort of facilitated by Shadow King. So you have at least that. But I mean, like the psychic powers thing, I think that sort of gets back to more of that kind of Fu Manchu kind of stereotype. Like they're not even doing their Orientalism right. They're yes. just like confusing <laughs> things. Because the Fu Manchu archetype is very much like about sort of shadowy hands of power, that kind of thing. And a lot of the yellow mm -hmm. peril images will be like kind of that shadowy hand sort of reaching over the world and casting a shadow over the entire world. So like I see a lot of kind of that coming across in this Shadow King character caricature because again they're just using this kind of very broad orientalism so it's just like it's offensive on on many many levels yeah and they always make them oppressive to women so, yeah oh yeah sorry go on yeah you're right oppressive to women it's weird because as Andrew said they're building to a Shadow King art you know in real time for them right now so as a reader there's not much you know about the Shadow King he is generic. This story makes little sense to us reading it 30 years into the future. It made no sense then either. I remember this coming out and uh, we've, we've talked before about the problem with the fill-in issues in Excalibur where it almost always comes off as we were rushing. We we didn't have Alan Davis. We didn't have time to we didn't have time to check this. Editorial control is loose. It feels rushed and it feels lazy. You know, he's a bad guy because we said so. And in order to make him seem more threatening, we will make him vaguely other. Is he is he Fu Manchu? Is he the yellow peril? Is he the the Muslim peril? I don't know. It doesn't matter because we've got to get him through this book. You know, he's fat because and we want to make him look evil. Let's give him some slaves that are women there. That that seems more evil. Right. And, you know, and he'll laugh maniacally and just get him off page because we're, we're done with it. Like the motivation makes no sense. And this world is not something we're familiar with. We're not coming back here after this issue. This is it. None of this stuff's resolved. This is just a pointless diversion. Yeah, Arabs and Muslims always just um, have the exact same stereotypes. So it doesn't really matter if they're like Muslim or not. It's a, you know, it's a character that has a fez, and we know he's from North Africa yeah. because of that. And then also too, they sell that point that oh, you know, um, he's got a harem of women. He oppresses women because the stereotype of Muslim men is always that they're violent and they're oppressors of women, right? So yeah, and we talked about the scene. With Emma Frost and him in the previous issue, which is very disturbing. But um, speaking of like oppressive to women or sexism in general, let's talk about this Kurt and Alison scene. Because obviously, as Kurt's PR manager, I've got thoughts about this scene. So, Sophia, I know you said that you were really not a particular fan of this scene. What do you hate about this scene? I'll give you a chance to gripe about it. I mean, well, yes, yeah, she does come off as kind of like stupid. Um, even though isn't she Doctor Stewart? I mean, you know, but I mean. Yeah, she's a scientist in this dimension. <laughs> so, um, sure, she is. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I was surprised by this because she didn't know anything, and I, I think the the panel that had him like and her dangling and he's saving her and he calls her the damsel in distress is like at that point I rolled my eyes and I I went over the. I went over that scene. I just found it cringeworthy. The flirting felt very much off and creepy. So yeah, yeah. that's my point. That's yeah. my perspective. So 
so, so I might be able to like save the comic here, <laughs> at least pointing out something redeemable about it. Mm -hmm. um, for people who are regular followers who know the characters Alistair and Alessand, that is not an alternate universe version of Alessand. That is an alternate universe version of Alistair. It has to be, right? Because what defines you, your name and your gender or the passion that you pursue in your life? We've got gender swapped Archangel earlier in the issue. Clearly that is Alistair, who was in this world born a woman and therefore his parents named him Alessand because that was always so the think, plan. So, okay, so, so Kurt is flirting with Alistair in this okay book. see and this could work if they i mean they're twins i get that right and the, and that's part of the character you're arguing that they haven't swapped careers you're arguing they swap genders that both Sex, yeah both say. twins yeah both twins swap well both right you're arguing Correct. that the brain inside of this character is still who we call Alistair Stewart but in this reality he was born female and Alisanne Stewart in this reality was born male you're saying we've only swapped genders but the characters are not swapped right wow that's the point of continuity okay, okay wow. so this is usually something that i say to anna and I'm, <laughs> andrew just wrote a better story yeah, than what better. is here because <laughs> yes. that i don't i'm interested in that yeah I, it, it probably would be more obvious if they weren't twins because that complicates it right but like i'm interested <sighs> in what you're saying but <laughs> but i don't know that that's on the page it would be more interesting too if there'd been some sort of interplay between kurt and alistair that would make that interesting you know like whereas we do have a consistent through line of kurt being attracted to alisand but we don't have really any insight into how she feels about Kurt and we certainly don't have in this scene regardless of how we're going to read this character but like that would definitely make it more interesting <laughs> I think that Andrew is um, Claremont's unofficial PR manager actually I'm being a little charitable yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that's bad I think it, I mean I think it's an interesting read I, I just don't know that they I mean I'm more interested in, in exploring that than anything else that's happened in this book I'm definitely headcanoning it and like yeah. running with it for the rest of the series <laughs> to me it's this these two these two issues like i said they're just so many just randomly abandoned ideas because i can't tell you you're yeah, wrong that's because in this world courtney ross and kitty pride are the same person i don't know why no it it affects nothing of the story it's just that you know oh we thought you were kitty no i'm courtney ross oh shocking why i don't know because we're literally never going to mention it again it doesn't well, come up again there's an affinity between kitty and courtney that gets teased at multiple moments like even uh -huh. as soon as sword is drawn yeah. like which we can read as attraction or different types of affinity and we're going to be talking about that again so i don't know if it's kind of bound up with that a little bit i mean to the extent that we'll later see courtney kind of groom and kitty to like Next some issue. relationship and, with her and, so and last issue sort of mm -hmm. i mean it's not i don't think that's the same as we're literally the same person right if you're making a big deal of the fact that we thought you were katie pride but you're saying you're courtney ross that needs to mean something and i think it needs to mean something to have kurt flirting with alistair or alisand whichever one it is but there's just so many ideas that are just sort of oh we can just be weird because it's the cross time caper and we're in another reality and it's about to end so you know let's get all the rest of our cross time capery ideas out in this issue and the next two uh, sorry, I have one thing to add because um, I forgot to mention it with um, the whole interracial coupling thing with Courtney slash Kitty slash whoever this is. But I do know Anna had said that, you know, well, what is Crusader or Captain Britain if they called him red-skinned? But I just want to state where I come from, red-skinned is a person who's multiracial. So um, I don't know if the British had that. Or not. Yeah, I have no idea what they meant by that line because it could I have applied to Kitty's Jewishness. And that's what I assumed given the writer's being well he's british but he's american so i kind of assumed that but then i didn't understand what that meant in the context of this world right. and we never see him without his mask on he just looks like brian so i don't know we, we see him know. like one time and we know he has dark long hair that's the one cue that we have maybe he's i i mean if he's american then it would probably be connected to indigenous representation but but i just know red to not be 
white, you know, so. Well, but also, and also Kitty is canonically Jewish. So is that what we're talking about? I don't know. It was very <laughs> unclear. Because I mean, you know, like there is an interesting thing being brought up in terms of, you know, race bending or ethnically bending, like the Captain Britain character is a potentially very intriguing storyline, given we've talked about sort of the colonialist problems bound up in the Captain Britain identity, which are actually just going to get mm-hmm. more pronounced as we have the Captain Britain core brought in. And yet for this being like a one off, and you know, we complained about Wozniak's like art in the last issue. And I mean, certainly a lot of that's going on here, too, where it's like, maybe there would be a reveal of the race bending if the art was better. But I mean, he's like almost made a choice to like never show Crusader X without his mask, revealing the mask in a, you know, EC Comics judgment way thing of being like, oh, man, it's not the character we expected. But that's not what we get here at all. So I it's like, just... if it's, is it in the script or was it added after it was penciled? I don't Who know. Knows? I mean, I don't know. It's, it's so throwaway to say it that way. I'm not convinced that Wozniak knew he was supposed to draw yeah yeah anything other than a white man yeah that's totally fair okay i want to talk about this kurt alison scene just like a little bit more because like i have like specific gripes about it and as kurt's pr manager i gotta like narrow these down and not defend him because the scene sucks but like so (laughs) we've talked about on previous episodes kurt saying something like the damsels in distress thing that's a go-to line for him usually he uses that line and gets it undercut by the woman he's applying it to and we see that happen repeatedly we saw that happen in excalibur number 16 we saw that happen in excalibur number four you know he calls Megan a damsel in distress and tosses her into the jungle gym and then she flies instead of falls into his arms and is like what the hell that's usually what happens here we get no subversion of Kurt's macho fantasy like he's just allowed to have the fantasy and Alessand or Alistair or whoever this is is just like passively participating in it she barely has lines and when she looks at him it's just with this blank faced doe-eyed expression that advertises no agency so like in order for Kurt's like corny romantic flirting to be fun there has to be participation of like whoever he's flirting with in the flirting and that's what I find particularly creepy about this scene I don't like that his fantasies aren't subverted that he gets to just participate in them uncritically which seems like a real step back for the character given some of the character progression he has had like he did supposedly have that moment back in Excalibur number 11 of realizing that some of his flirting had gone too far he does behave sort of differently with Megan since Excalibur number four and this is just like a reversion to the worst version of him and i hate it so much this is like a version of what can be so bad about that tendency in this character that's presented totally uncritically and it's really really bad i I just i just found this entirely to be just i'm sorry it's very mortifying um but i i will give kurt the benefit (laughs) of the doubt based on on anna's love of him so it's not a good no it's not you don't have to give him the benefit of the doubt in this not 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 here elsewhere but like I can imagine like just tweaking this scene to have her participating in it and to have his fantasies undercut and to have her agency foregrounded it could be a mutual thing where they're like participating in excitement you know that thing in like a lot you know I do some work on the television show Man from Uncle so that's sort of a technique that they use in that show where you have these adventuring men that enter the lives of these quote unquote average women and take them on a fun sexy adventure and that's like what a swashbuckler character often does right and that is a role that Kurt often plays but to let him have the fantasy here without the participation of her agency is like really really bad i know i know kidnapped her and And then and almost gets her killed and then she looks at him like oh okay we can have sex now I know, like he, the part where he teleports her outside and she's collapsing, and then she just looks at him like, "Man, I love you." It's just like, what the hell was that? Like, I mean, that needed to be rendered way differently. She needed to be way angrier, and she needed to be like trying to punch him or something because, like, that is not an appropriate reaction to what he just did. And he didn't kidnap her a little while ago, like literally ninety seconds ago. Just yeah, this is the same scene. He just kidnapped her. Like, and I mean, it's just like my completely one eighty of Andrew's charitable reading of it is that this is just like the start of teasing Kurt Alessand and the only place that Kurt Alessand as a relationship or like as a flirty thing goes is that man isn't it funny that Kurt's in love with this big strong military lady and that's like the nature of that relationship it does goes nowhere and this isn't her even yeah. if it's not if Andrew's reading it's still an alternate take of her I I don't know what to do with any of this. There's so much that it seems inconsistent. I I don't want to put it on Wozniak because Wozniak was brought in to do a job. This is on Claremont, who, again, I like. But like I said, I think he's writing alternate fanfic to 
something that he never published. So much happens here that I don't know what he's doing because the Megan in this comic, forget Kurt. Kurt has unlearned everything that he's learned in the last 21 issues. Like now, Kurt just forgot everything that happened with Nazi Nightcrawler and Brigadier Stewart and Megan. He just forgot. And then Megan, who appears in this comic and in last issue, I don't know who this person is. She is not the Megan from Excalibur 1 through 19 or even Excalibur 20. And she is not the Megan that appears in Excalibur number 23. Who is this person who hates Rachel all of a sudden? Who is this lady with backbone? I don't know anything about what what Claremont's doing in this issue. Like I said, it's not just the 90s of it. It doesn't make sense to me in the context of reading it now. It doesn't make sense to me in the context of reading it then. It's and I don't representing her it as catty and not a team player and being competitive maybe to women um, or at least like, you know, being um, some kind of female kind of issue between both characters. <laughs> I mean, it, that stereotype is uh, sexist. There's there's no other way to describe it. It's, yeah. it's sexist. It's well, see, and it's not Megan though. That's the right. weird thing. She doesn't that's, do that. Yeah. See, and that's where that's where I think it's bizarre because so we've got so we've got Spy coming here with not much background, right? So if you're starting reading the series now, you're going to get a view of a problematic female character that is Megan. That is a stereotype, and I'm going to be uncharitable to Megan, who I like. But the uncharitable view of of reading Megan is that Megan is a problematic female stereotype. That is the exact opposite one of this right if you don't like megan normally you don't like megan because she is a you know she is a manic pixie dream girl bimbo like that's the uncharitable way of reading her is that she is a childlike innocent born born sexy yesterday no common sense character and i think claremont can make it work but no. which is why i've enjoyed her so much but but this person is is mean yeah who is this who is this who is this mean girl that like is feuding with i don't want to save rachel rachel's calling for help but you know does she do we really want to go help her and i'm like really the megan that i know is more likely to get into trouble because oh i guess i better go help and then get captured than she is to say oh rachel needs us so i don't want to help like that's can i um (laughs) why was why was she mad at rachel because i was a bit unclear you know rachel don't know <laughs> yeah, it, she's not like, okay, like it's well, not explained. The, the only context for them having tension is that there's been this like futz up with their powers where like rachel has been kind of like seizing control of megan's body and doing weird things to it but part of what makes me think that maybe these two issues are a production schedule thing is because like they would make slightly more sense if they went before three of the previous issues because megan and rachel had resolved a lot of kind of their conflicts in previous issues so like they did have a conflict but it wasn't this still doesn't properly describe the nature of the conflict because that wasn't megan's reaction to it ever but like never bothered megan yeah rachel was mad at megan megan megan's never been upset at rachel ever this is new yeah like rachel was mad at megan yeah i mean (laughs) rachel was the one that like back in excalibur number 12 she's like don't you touch me megan don't save me i'll do it myself like rachel was the one yeah if you hate her if you were to be critical of her you'd be critical of her because nobody is that naive and and simplistic so if this is your first issue of excalibur this character is completely doesn't appear before this and doesn't come back like i don't know who that is like megan is a character at this point in her writing because she gets better but at this point she's a character with almost no backbone it's her biggest flaw is that she's easy to manipulate because she has no sense of self-worth okay like we've done a lot of griping and we haven't been this negative for a while so maybe we were like (laughs) doomed but anything that we didn't talk about in this issue that we're desperate to talk about any more gripes you want to get off your chest there are i'm going to be charitable you know when 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 i'm teaching a writing workshop i'm always like you know say something nice yeah with all your means so there are interesting ideas here like i like the idea that we are exploring a world where it's not just that there was never a world war ii apparently there was never an american revolutionary war Mm -hmm. because it appears that the tony stark in this is with you know some american colonies or something It, it it's not clear to me i like that there are interesting ideas that are going on the discouraging part is because they're too quick there's too many of them and we never get back to them i think that there is probably something interesting happening with the werewolves here. It's not the interesting thing that is going to happen with the werewolves. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why Kitty is like this. This it, is it, a little bit of so a much... dropped plot thread, yeah. Yeah, 
yeah, it, it you know, I want to know why Courtney Ross of this alternate reality looks like Kitty Pride. I really want to know this. I do like I'm going to be charitable to to Wozniak here because I like a lot about what he's trying to do with the artwork. It seems rushed and forced here, but one of the things that I really like about his work here is the weight of the Iron Man suit is awesome. Like I like that Iron Man looks like it's some heavy armor that something's happening. It's just so chaotic is my my negative for everything that we complained about. And then my least favorite thing is just the way this ends. I think Kurt is supposed to be hugging Rachel or maybe he just killed her. I'm not clear on that last <laughs> panel. <laughs> that last panel, like he's either hugging her or he broke her neck and I don't know which. Yeah. It's I like, weird. okay, well that ties in with my thing that I was going to mention, which is that I actually do like the hug at the end and the pose is weird. I agree. I like get what it's going for. I think that pose could work if it was rendered a little bit differently because I like that it is like a very intimate way of hugging someone without being sexual, if that Uh makes sense. And like in Uh theory, I think that pose could work. I could like imagine writing somebody hugging someone like that way it would make sense, but not the way it's drawn here. It's Yes, I was a former professional wrestler. That's not how you hug someone. (laughs) That is how you put them in a TAS mission. You will knock someone out. You might kill them. Do not hug people like that. (laughs) It's not good. You know, I wish I could end on something positive. And I I do like that, you know, he seems a bit of a comfort to her. I don't like how the hug looks as well, too. But I don't really know anything about Excalibur as much. So I, I will give some final thoughts. Just overall, like, this is a comic about empire, right? And and about the British Empire, which it has a legacy of being that's problematic. A, that's, a, see, that's, a, that's a charitable thing to say, Cynthia. <laughs> just call it problematic. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, it's not even... I, I just didn't even know how to sound professional about it. It's just been actually abominable. But... But but that's yeah. that's a whole other thing altogether. But you know, I I think um, again, I saw a little bit of reinscription of Empire, you know, in relation to the Shadow King um, and what they were up against as well. And it is when um, one of them mentions that they are a nation of laws. The global South has always been has always been represented, especially under Empire, as savage and chaotic and generally lacking in order. So I saw it as like another way to reinscribe Empire. And I, the reason why I jumped to that conclusion is because, you know, we do, we had, this episode was so much about Orientalism and the Shadow King as well too, and his representation and how just absolutely icky and horrible it is. I feel like in a title that is a lot about glorifying the British Empire, you know, that, that final, final bit, it starts off where Crusader X is talking about the British Empire. And it ends with talking about, well, you know, we're a nation of laws when when Rachel wants to go after the Shadow King and, and hurt him um, in some tangible way. And it, it kind of makes me think of like things that actually came into the real world after um, in terms of like uh, in terms of torture and surveillance and those things, you know, with Rachel, Rachel's passion to fight and um, stop this villain. So, you know, I just felt like that final page was just another way to reinforce the Empire. So I can't I can't end on a positive give notes. <laughs> no, and I think that that's a very good summation of what goes on here, right? Because the nature of Shadow King's villainy justifies like the reassertion of empire is mm-hmm. like effectively what you're kind of arguing here, right? Yes, exactly. You you put it in the proper words, but I kind of like that's succinctly it, you know, it just his representation is just one way of just um reinforcing empire just overall. For sure. I think that that's very fair and yeah, it cuts to the heart of issues that I would have with that character in particular. Um the last thing I'm just going to do is to highlight a letter from the Sword Strokes letters page which actually touches on sort of political issues um, having to do with race. It's a letter about Excalibur number 15 which we obviously talked about a little while ago. We talked about some of the very affecting but in other ways problematic allegory of apartheid that we had in that comic. So this letter is from Bob Schrieb Jr. um, from Fords, New Jersey. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's one of these really really long letters. So there's some confusion things that happen in this letter and it'll be up on our video and everything and I'll, I'll throw it up on the webpage as well there's some confusing things that happen in this issue where he's complaining that they're not depicting the situation in like various parts of Africa effectively and he's citing like real life situations in Ethiopia and South Africa in particular and he's saying like it's actually there's infighting going on in that region so like the fact that you did the villain as mercenaries is bad because you didn't depict it accurately so like I have sort of some issues with 
that. And I don't want to like throw this person from the past under the bus, so I won't get into all of that. But the thing that I wanted to highlight at the end of the letter, which I think is interesting, is just the last paragraph. So he says, frankly, the whole situation of power politics over human survival in Africa is too complex to be depicted adequately in most graphic works. It is also sadly too real to be allowed to be depicted by the publishers. Things like entire planets being destroyed, other dimensional disasters, etc. are fine and dandy, but a real life problem of unending duration like the famines being maintained in Africa or an incurable plague like AIDS only are permitted the briefest, most cursory reference rather than serve as an actual plotline. It's a kind of subtle censorship that dictates that real life problems, which do not resolve well in comics or elsewhere, are not given extensive publicity in the comics medium, which is a great pity. Situations like those in Africa need more publicity, not less, if we are ever to resolve them in the long term, if at all. That covers it. Thank you. So I think he's bringing up some good points there about sort of some of these sort of problems with kind of doing these real life air allegories in this type of story. The thing that I found particularly interesting, though, was in graphic works. Like he's saying graphic works in general. And we talked before about how this is an interesting sort of turning point in sort of the history of comics. It'll be just a couple of years before Mouse wins the Pulitzer. So like to talk graphic works in general aren't the place for these kinds of complex real world stories. I found just an interesting thing to say at this time. I will put it that way. Interesting. And we should talk a little bit just uh, we're at the end of the episode. So I don't want to go into too much, much into it. But letters columns are curated, right? Yeah. I, I think Marvel is is trying to be progressive and interesting by publishing this letter. Mm -hmm. However, the way to get your letter published in the days of letter columns, you know, before the internet, was to treat Marvel Comics, the company, like it was all of comics, the industry. So to pretend that, you know, oh, well, you know, can you do this inside of a graphic narrative? Yeah, there are other comics being published yeah. today <laughs> at, at this in this world that, like, maybe Marvel Comics wasn't great at, about doing this because Marvel Comics has a problem where they're trying to present this ongoing world where if you solve the problem, now I'm out of sync with the rest of the world. Because if I solve apartheid in 1988 or when, when, that, when Excalibur 15 came out and then apartheid doesn't get solved, what do I do now? Right? Like, how do I, how do I handle that? So I understand why that decision was made, but I would push back against Bob here a little bit because I, I don't think this means that you can't do it. And I don't think there, it means that there wasn't value in trying even at that time period. Right? Because I was, you know, I, I certainly, I'm, I'm a weird nerdy kid who was trying to become an English major, even as a ninth grader when this book's come, coming yeah. out. Right? Like I, like I get that I'm, I'm weird, but like probably for a lot of friends of mine who might have been reading Excalibur at that time in 1989, that could be some kid's first experience with apartheid. And you need to do that, right? For everything problematic we said about today, about the way the Shadow Kings presented, right? If this is the first time that you're seeing these problems or problems with the British Empire or problems with anything, then at least that's a positive. So I don't think saying don't do it is fair. Yeah, I don't think saying don't do it is fair, although you're bringing up a good contrast with this issue and why we were a lot more generous with Excalibur number 15, despite it having some problems, which was that there was like a genuineness and a level of complexity there that, that like is just not present. <laughs> here right yeah. so like even though there were some issues with stereotype and caricature there here with shadow king it's almost just stereotype and caricature to the point that we only know he's a villain because of the reliance on that stereotype and caricature because his motives are completely unclear doc croc had motives and like he had reasons for doing things and he wasn't a villain he was like a hero who was originally like misperceived as a villain so there was just so much more complexity to that issue than anything that we have going on here anyway yeah <laughs> sophia go ahead Oh, I was just responding to Mav's point, um, you know, honestly, and especially with everything that's happened this week, um, and just, just based on what my, my participants, the participants, I should say, of my audience study, and just, just a general, you know, I, idea of what I've, I've learned from people of color, I, I just feel bad representation is, it's better to have no representation than bad representation, because... Yeah. You know, I think um, I I truly do think that when you present 
a stereotype and just one that's just very bad. And, you know, even ones that are simplistic as well, too. It's not that kids are going to turn around and be like, I want to learn more about this culture. It's just mainly that they're going to look at it and just think these people are bad. You know, we had a there, there was recently a terrorist attack in London, Ontario, where a a man um, ran over a Muslim family, three generations, you know, a father, a mother, a grandmother, a brother and a sister. And um, only the son survived. And he was 20 years old, and he committed this attack. I can't, I, I can't speak to his motive. But I just feel when there is such there's such a, a large amount of negative representation as well, too, people just have horrible opinions of, of said group and um, are, are willing to be very biased to, towards them. And in this case, we saw how bias can actually turn violent. I just really do um, agree that with participants and other other people of color, just in general, that you know, bad representation is, it's, it's better to have no representation than bad representation. Yeah. Which is a hard thing to say, but yeah. Yeah. But it, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is a good, because, you know, as media scholars, we know that there's no one-to-one relationship between like media and society. And yet we'd be fools to deny that representations that are sort of as ingrained as what we see with Shadow King here, where it's so ingrained that they didn't even feel the need to question it. I mean, that's mm-hmm. part of this entire context that creates that kind of hate. And it does have real world consequences, as you're saying evil because he is and that's mm-hmm. and that's what that's what this book gives you that's yeah it's lazy can i give you a chance to end on something positive sophia which is that you know we've talked just now about some of the real world consequences of bad representation what is the value of good representation what can good representation do for us like what are the real world impacts of that because i'm assuming that's a big part of sort of how you're advocating within your work on representation mm-hmm. for something better right well good representation humanizes a group of people so you know that's that's really what is what what's the best thing about good representation also nuanced representation like Kamala Khan in the series certainly in the earlier books um, written by G Willow Wilson is nuanced representation and but and, and it's still good it's still positive but we see how she's relatable to so many people how she She's relatable to Muslims. She's relatable to first-generation immigrants. She's relatable to uh, South Asians as well, too. But above all, she's a teenager at the end of the day. And her story is very universal. And so good representation and nuanced and deep representation as well, too does actually humanize a group of people. And I think when we see that rather than a tokenized good representation, which I would still say is better than bad representation, but nuanced representation does humanize someone, especially in the age that we live in. It's important to have that. When you can see someone really as uh, these are just my classmates, these are just my colleagues, these are these are just kids, you know, um, it does go a long way with creating tolerance. That's that's what I think. Yeah, for sure. And especially to see sort of heroes, right? I mean, we rag on sort of the simplicity of the superhero genre sometimes, but its ability to create cultural ideals that, you know, they're a character that you can invest in and that believe in and then want to be and empathize with. And I think that can be really powerful. Like, is that, so, is that sort of part of what particularly draws you to superheroes, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, you know, I would definitely say that not all Muslim superheroes have, have been a positive addition. I would just say that it's a complete complex archetype because all all archetypes are all types even are complex once you see a typology once you see archetypes they're complex they're neither good nor bad they're just overall they're very complex so but it's it does actually have um it, it has has created a lot of nuance it has created um a different type of representation apart from like the terrorist or the oppressed women and so I do see it as as moving forward. I do see that as progress. We'll try to end on a positive note, so so we'll wrap up there. My king, I couldn't do it. Excalibur cannot be lost. Other men do as I command. One day, the king will come, and the sword will rise again. So, Sophia, thank you so much again for joining us. We we're so thrilled to have your voice on this episode. Thank you so much for your insights and in getting through a very difficult issue with us. We're so, so grateful. So a little chance to plug your pluggables. Where can people find you if you would like them to find you? And what works of yours should they check out? And where can they check them out? So you can find me on Twitter at SafiBell with an E, three zero. So at SafiBell30. And um, I do have my, my academia.edu approach 
profile is my link. So some of my academic writings are there. And in terms of my, my, where you can find my actual public scholarship work or, you know, everyday articles, um, I wrote one for the conversation and I've, I've written book reviews for women write about comics, but it's been a while since I've written for them. So I do hope to write things that are more public facing. Um, so, but check my Twitter because I always announce that on my Twitter. And we will link some of your comics work as stuff in our show notes. That would be awesome to link. To. Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention that because, you know, I'm talking to scholars. Yes, you can find I, I did write a comic for the Nib and I have written for Toronto Comics and I did write for um, a kingdom uh, for a panel. So um, that's another uh, comics anthology. So do check my work out there, please. Yeah, we will have all of those things linked on our webpage. Thank you so much again. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you very much. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode 24, in which we'll be discussing Excalibur number 23, Here Comes the Judge, in which Alan Davis is back, thank goodness. Ileana's the Sorcerer Supreme, Kurt's human, and Kitty dies? We'll talk about it. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywood.com. Wow.com, where we've got some fun extras and via Twitter at Gosh Golly Wow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Matt, for another energizing conversation. We got through it. Thank you, Sophia, for helping us through it. Thank you all for listening and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought Forum Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. That's it. Done. Yay. And we'll get all piece together somehow. <laughs>